Genesis 41, as we're making our way through Genesis, and we're just going to go ahead and read through it and come back and see what the Lord has for us. Then it came to pass at the end of two full years that Pharaoh had a dream, and behold, he stood by the river. Suddenly there came up out of the river seven cows, fine-looking and fat, and they fed in the meadow. Then, behold, seven other cows came up after them out of the river, ugly and gaunt, and stood by the other cows on the bank of the river. And the ugly and gaunt cows ate up the seven fine-looking and, the fat, and fat cows. So Pharaoh awoke, and he slept and dreamed a second time. And suddenly seven heads of grain came up on the stalk, plump and good. Then, behold, seven thin heads, blighted by the east wind, sprang up after them. And the seven thin heads devoured those seven plump and full heads. And so Pharaoh awoke, and indeed it was a dream. And now it came to pass in the morning, though, that his spirit was troubled, and he sent and called for all the magicians of Egypt and all its wise men. And Pharaoh told them his dreams, but there was no one who could interpret them for Pharaoh. And then the chief butler spoke to Pharaoh, saying, I remember my faults this day. When Pharaoh was angry with his servants and put me in custody in the house of the captain of the guard, both me and the chief baker, and we each had a dream one night, he and I, each of us dreamed according to the interpretation of his own dream. And now there was a young Hebrew man with us there, a servant of the captain of the guard, and he told him, and he had interp- and uh, we told him, and he interpreted our dreams for us. To each man he interpreted according to his own dream. And then it came to pass, just as he interpreted for us, so it happened. And he restored me to my office, and he hanged him. And then Pharaoh sent and called Joseph, and they brought him quickly out of his dungeon. He shaved and changed his clothes and came to Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, I had a dream, and there is no one who can interpret it. But I heard it said of you that you can understand a dream to interpret it. And so Joseph answered Pharaoh, saying, It is not me. God will give Pharaoh the answer of peace. And then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Behold, in my dream I stood on the bank of the river, and suddenly seven cows came up out of the river, fine-looking and fat, and they fed in the meadow. And behold, seven other cows came up after them, poor and very ugly and gaunt and such ugliness as I had never seen in all the land of Egypt. And the gaunt and ugly cows ate up the first seven, the fat cows, And when they had eaten them up, no one would have known that they had eaten them up, for they were just as ugly at the beginning. And so I awoke. And also I saw in my dream, and suddenly seven heads came up on one stalk, full and good. And behold, seven heads with withered, thin, uh, with, yes, then the seven heads withered, thin, and blighted by the east wind, sprang up after them. And then the thin heads devoured the seven good heads, and so I told this to the magicians, but there is no one who could explain it to me. Then Joseph said to Pharaoh, The dreams of Pharaoh are one. God has shown Pharaoh what is he about to do, and the seven good cows are seven years, and the seven good heads are seven years. The dreams are one. And the seven thin and ugly cows which came up after him are seven years, and the seven empty heads blighted by the east wind are seven years of famine. And this is the thing which I have spoken to Pharaoh God has shown Pharaoh what he is about to do. Indeed, seven years of great plenty will come throughout all the land of Egypt. But after them, seven years of famine will arise, and all the plenty will be forgotten in the land of Egypt, and the famine will deplete the land. And so the plenty will not be known in the land because of the famine following, for it will be very severe. And the dream which was repeated to Pharaoh twice, or and the dream which was Repeated, no, I'm sorry, and the dream was repeated to Pharaoh twice because the thing is established by God, and God will shortly bring it to pass. Now, therefore, let Pharaoh select a discerning and wise man and set him over the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh do this, and let him appoint officers over the land to collect one-fifth of the produce of the land of Egypt in the seven plentiful years, And let them gather all the food of those good years that are coming and store up grain under the authority of Pharaoh. And let them keep food in the cities. 
Then that food shall be as a reserve for the land for the seven years of famine, which shall be in the land of Egypt, that the land may not perish during the famine. And so the advice was good in the eyes of Pharaoh, in the eyes of all his servants. And Pharaoh said to his servants, Well, can we find such a one as this, a man in whom is the Spirit of God? And Pharaoh said to Joseph, Inasmuch as God has shown you all this, there is no one as discerning and wise as you. You shall be over my house, and all my people shall be ruled according to your word. Only in regard to the throne will I be greater than you. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. And then Pharaoh took his signet ring off his hand and put it on Joseph's hand. And he clothed him in garments of fine linen and put a gold chain around his neck. And he had him ride in the second chariot which he had. And they cried out before him, Bow the knee. And so he set him over all the land of Egypt. And Pharaoh also said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh, and with your consent, or I should say, and without your consent, no man may lift his hand or foot in all the land of Egypt. And Pharaoh called Joseph's name Zaphnath and Paaniah, and he gave him as wife Azanath, the daughter of Potipharah, priest of An. And so Joseph went out over all the land of Egypt, and Joseph was 30 years old when he stood before Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And Joseph went out from the presence of Pharaoh and went throughout all the land of Egypt. Now in the seven plentiful years, the ground brought forth abundantly. So he gathered up all the food of the seven years which were in the land of Egypt and laid it up food in the cities. He laid up every city in every city the food in the fields which surrounded them. And so Joseph gathered very much grain as the sand of the sea until he stopped counting, for it was immeasurable. And to Joseph were born two sons before the years of famine came, whom Azanath, the daughter of Potipharah, priest of An, bore to him. And Joseph called the name of the firstborn Manasseh, for God has made me forget all my toil and all my father's house. And the name of the second he called Ephraim, for God has caused me to be fruitful in the land of my affliction. Well, then the seven years of plenty, which were in the land of Egypt, ended. And the seven years of famine began to come. As Joseph had said, the famine was in all the lands. But in the land of Egypt, there was bread. So when all the land of Egypt was famished, and the people cried to Pharaoh for bread, then Pharaoh said to all the Egyptians, Go to Joseph. Whatever he says to you, that you're going to do. And the famine was over all the face of the earth, Joseph opened all the storehouses and sold to the Egyptians, and the famine became severe in the land of Egypt. So all countries came to Joseph in Egypt by grain, because the famine was also severe in all lands. <clears throat> so Joseph and Pharaoh. So notice it said in verse uh, One, the very first thing it says, at the end of two full years, so from the time that the butler was let loose and the baker was hanged, um, it was two more years that Joseph waited there in prison until um, the butler had a dream. And and it's funny, the butler, the way he says this, uh, when he tells him, we'll get to that, but he, he knows he did wrong by forgetting him. But Pharaoh has two dreams, seven cows that are fat, seven cows that are lean, and the lean ones devour the fat ones to the point where nothing changes. The same gaunt look on them, even though they've just devoured the, the fat ones. And then the seven heads of grain plump, and the seven heads of grain thin and blighted and parched. But the river he sees there is the Nile. And, um, you know, that was their confidence, the Nile River. If you look at any map today you're going to see that all of Egypt to the west is mostly desert. It's like the beginning of the Sahara Desert. And uh, it's, even to this day, just barren. But uh, if you look at any picture, any map, or Google Earth, you'll see right on either side of that river, a few miles from either side, it's just green. Because that's everything they use for irrigation, everything they use for watering, and then for the cattle and the animals to drink. And so he sees that Nile, and that was their confidence. And I think right there in the dream the Lord is already showing him that the river is not going to save you in all of this. But um, the rest of uh, Egypt is desert, and even all the way down to where you get the whole northern part of Africa. 
And back then, the kingdom was mostly in the same area it is now, only really more up into uh, uh, the land of Israel or even the, the Sinai and into that area as well. Back then was the kingdom of Egypt. Um, but so um, Pharaoh tells his dream to his wise men and to his magicians, but they're no help at all. They can't make any sense of this, and they, they can't interpret its meaning. And so... The cupbearer remembers Joseph, and he admits his faults. Now, normally, you're not going to want to remind Pharaoh, the guy who threw you in jail because he was furious, that he had to throw you in jail once because he was furious. You don't want to bring that sort of thing up to the Pharaoh anymore. But he realizes his fault and realizes that uh, you know he, he knows somebody who can help. And so he has to bring it up, and he tells Pharaoh, he says, you know, the, there was a guy, this young Hebrew, he calls him, and um, so Pharaoh calls up uh, Joseph out of prison to come before him and interpret these dreams. But notice the first thing Joseph says when Pharaoh says, uh, you know, and, and Joseph says he can, can, can do this, but he says, it's not me. And that's really one of the major points tonight. Um, Joseph says, it's not me. It's God who will give you an answer of peace. And what that means is, you know, his spirit was troubled. He had, he had problems with this. Uh, it was bothering him. He had to see if he could get an interpretation. And uh, it troubled his spirit. It was different than a nightmare. It was something that carried over with him the next day and uh, troubled him. And so uh, none of these other guys could give him an answer. But he says, God will give you an answer of peace. And that word is, is peace in order to answer that troubling spirit that you have. You're going to hear what you need to hear to settle that, to, to give you what the interpretation is, and the trouble will be answered. And, um, but he says, it's not me. And part, if you want to turn to Isaiah 40, um, how important is it to God that he gets the glory, and why? Um, you know, it, the first thing simply is he loves us and he wants to, us to know that he's our only salvation. Um, and so he gets the glory because indeed he has created all things. He is almighty God. And um, he's the one that brings things to pass. There's a few passages we're going to kind of skip, but just if you wanted to make notes, uh, Isaiah 40 through 46 is a call for Israel to let go of their false gods. And it kind of parallels with Jeremiah, how they made these gods out of pieces of a tree after they got done using the tree for a bunch of other stuff. And somehow that piece was a god to them after they used uh, that tree for building and for burning fire and, and keeping warm. And, and uh, so it was really ridiculous. But just like anything, you know, if you want to start getting away with something, if you want to start walking in your sin, you know, you're going to come up with whatever you've got to come up with to get away with what you want to get away with. But, um, and that becomes your God, and it's just, it's foolishness, because why would you, uh, why would you call a piece of wood the God of all things, you know? But it starts out in verse 40, I'm sorry, in chapter 40, verse 1, comfort, yes, Comfort, my people, says your God. Speak comfort to Jerusalem and cry out to her that her welfare, her, her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, for she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. And this is harkening back to that they'd been taken into captivity into Babylon. And, um, and then uh, after he, they returned, the Lord has judged them and he has disciplined them. And they have received... Um, uh, double what they had coming for all their sins. But then he says, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be exalted, and every mountain and hill brought low. The crooked places shall be made straight, and the rough places smooth. The glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. The voice said, cry out. And he said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all the loveliness, all of its loveliness is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades. 
because the breath of the Lord blows upon it. Surely the people are grass, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. O Zion, you who bring good tidings, get up into the high mountains. O Jerusalem, you who bring good tidings, lift up your voice with strength and lift it up and be not afraid. Say to the cities of Judah, Behold your God. Behold, the Lord God shall come with a strong hand and his arm shall rule for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his work before him. He will feed his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs with his arm and carry them in his bosom and gently lead those who are with young. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand, measured heaven with a span, and calculated the dust of the earth as a measure, weighed the mountains in scales, and the hills in balance? Who has directed the spirit of the Lord, or who has, or, or has his counselor has taught him? With whom did he take counsel, and who instructed him, and taught him the path of justice? Who taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? You know, it's interesting because many people like to see if they can get God to contradict himself by looking in the word and saying, well, it says here this and it says over there that. And it's his ways are so far above our ways. His wisdom is so far above ours. His foolishness is wiser than the wisest men on earth, the Bible says. But it's, uh, you know, this, this almost an obvious reasoning and understanding Who's going to counsel God? Who's going to give him instructions and tell him what justice is? You know, um, behold, in verse 15, the nations, the nations, all the nations, are as a drop in a bucket and are counted as small dust on the scales. In other words, when you're weighing out your, your grain against a couple of little tabs of silver to see how much they weigh or whatever the weights are, you know, what's that little piece of dust there that you don't even think of it? You know, it doesn't even, it's insignificant. And so Lebanon is not sufficient to burn, nor its beasts sufficient for a burnt offering. If you think of Lebanon, how many of you heard of the Becca Valley? The Becca Valley lies between two ridges, and then after the next one towards the west, it goes down to the Mediterranean Sea. Well, that Becca Valley has been a fertile fertile land for, for millennia, and back in David's day, you remember, and before, before this, well, it had been after this, but... Um, or before this it would have been where the cedars of Lebanon were used to build the, the temple, and they'd bring down cedars. And it just was this lush area up in Lebanon. Well, that's nothing, not even to be burned, he says. Not even sufficient. It's not sufficient for an offering. All the animals that live in all this lush area and all these forests, there's nothing there for a burnt offering. All nations before him are as nothing, and they are counted by him as less than nothing and worthless. To whom then will you liken God? What likeness will you compare to him? The workman molds an image, and a goldsmith overspreads it with gold. Silversmith casts silver and chains. Whoever is too impoverished for such a contribution chooses a tree that will not rot, and he seeks for himself a skillful workman to prepare a carved image that will not totter. You know, so they're building these little gods if they can. And if it's a poor guy, well, he'll just find a piece of wood and he'll give it to somebody else to make it steady and, and something that uh, holds up as a god, I guess. But have you not known, have you not heard, has it not been told you from the beginning that you uh, have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth. And that means that the earth is a circle. It's not a flat earth. Let's put that to, well, you know, it's not even worth spending time on. And its inhabitants are like grasshoppers who stretch out of the heavens like a curtain, spreads them out like a tent to dwell in. He brings the prices of the princes to nothing. He makes the judges of the earth useless. Scarcely, scarcely shall they be planted. Scarcely shall they be sown. Scarcely shall their stock take root in the earth when he will also blow on them and they will wither. And the whirlwind will take them away like stubble. Who causes a famine? The Lord's the one that can cause a famine. There's a lot of other reasons, and, and a lot of other, we'll talk about here the famines, but um, you know, God allows things to happen. God brings rain, and uh, He's the one that allows a famine to take place. Anything that you would seek to you know develop and grow and cause, and we'll talk about 
like Monsanto and GMOs and all the things they've done to try and make it so that they can withstand just about anything. I think they even came up with some strain that's a, um, you know, it can survive a drought of some kind of supplying food and all that. But, you know, all God does before he even sprouts up, blows on it and withers and becomes nothing. All the things that we would put our trust in is what he's getting at, you know, instead of trusting him. To whom then will you liken me? Or whom shall I be equal, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes on high and see who has created these things, who brings out their host by number. He calls them by name, by the greatness of his might, by the strength of his power. No one is missing. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and my just claim is passed over by my God, as if God can't see right through everything? Have you not known, have you not heard the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, neither faints nor is weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the weak and to those who have no might. He increases strength. Even the youths shall faint and be weary and the young men shall utterly fall. But those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength and they shall mount up on wings like eagles and they shall run and not be weary and they shall walk and not faint. In verse uh, 4 of chapter 41, he says, Who has performed it and done it? Calling the generations from the beginning, all these nations he's talking about, right from the beginning of the foundations. We went through the table of nations back in Genesis uh, 6, and, uh, and in Genesis 10, and Tower of Babel, and all. And all that was guided by the Lord. You know, he knows. He's done this. He's called the generations from the beginning. I, the Lord, am the first and with the last, I am he. You know, who else said that? Alpha and Omega. You know, our Lord did. Um, chapter 42, just verses 1 through 9, mostly getting down to, to uh, 8 and 9. Behold my servant who I uphold, my elect one, in whom, is my soul, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him, and I will bring forth justice to the Gentiles, and he will not cry out, nor raise his voice, nor cause his voice to be heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, a smoking flax he will not quench. And he will bring forth justice for truth, and he will not fail nor be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth, and the coastlands shall wait for his law. Thus says the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread forth the earth and that which comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it, and the spirit to those who walk on it. I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness and will hold your hand. I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people, as a light to the Gentiles, to open the blind eyes, to bring out prisoners from prison, those who sit in darkness from the prison house. I am the Lord, that is my name, and my glory I will not give to another nor my praise to carved images. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I declare. Before they spring up, I tell you of them. And so what he's saying here is he's a jealous God. He's, he's not going to allow praise and glory to go to these false gods. And Joseph is saying to, you know, just in full wisdom, he's saying to uh, Pharaoh, it's not me. It's the Lord who's giving you the interpretation of this dream. And so it's so important that we give glory to the Lord. He loves us. That's why we point to him and we take no glory to ourselves. Anything we do in his name, like giving, even to giving a glass of water, he said you'll receive a reward. But we point to him. You know, he's the one that saves. He's the one that can give eternal life and in Jesus Christ. None of these false gods or idols that people follow can save them. And that's why he must be lifted up and he must be glorified. So men and women are drawn to him and find salvation and freedom in him. You know, the reason he is, is so uh, desirous that he gets the glory is so that we don't look to some other false god, some other idol, and some other, uh, something we've even made with our own hands that's going to save us because we won't be saved and he loves us 
to let us know that that won't do the job. Only he can do that. And so we do want to give him the glory. And it's just and it's right to do so. False gods and idols, they bring you to slavery. You know, and, and eternal judgment. But Jesus saves and delivers us from death. And it's so important to God that mankind look to him because he loves us. He looked to him for salvation and he doesn't want anybody to perish, but that all would come to repentance and have eternal life in him. Some can't reconcile how a loving God can have, you know, stand by and allow evil to take place. But, you know, this is a fallen world since the garden. Um, we know the difference between good and evil because of it. And uh, so men, you know, he desires that men would turn from evil and draw close to him. Lay aside the false gods and don't put your trust in them. And that's why uh, he desires that we give him all the glory because it's, it's just the way, the right thing and also because of his love for us. Sin will always make you a slave, and, uh, but he has made us free. And um, how are we going to lead somebody to uh, freedom? You know, point them to Jesus and give him all the glory. Don't look to any man for what only God can do because men are going to always let you down. Even everybody in this room, one time or another, is going to let somebody down. And it's better to put your hope and your trust in God and let God be uh, your hope and that which uh, you trust more than any man or woman. And so it's important for us to, to depend on him and yes, there is love, and we're to love the brethren and meet each other's needs and take care of each other and all. Um, but there's some, they want you to be dependent on them. There's some that want you to know that you're not going to get by unless you kind of come over and get my counseling or buy my book and do all those things. And, you know, beware of those. They're drawing men and women to themselves rather than pointing to the Lord. And a lot of times we do need help from one another. Absolutely. Nevertheless, what happens in the end? Are, 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 we being, are we pointing to the Lord for that? Or are we saying, like Joseph said, it's not me. Only God can do this. And, uh, and that way they don't become dependent on you. They become dependent on the Lord and let him provide for them. So look to him. And you know he'll use who he will in our lives to encourage and bless and if they're wise, they will give God the glory. Because without him, none of us can do anything. Amen? So, verses 17 through 24, back in Genesis. That's why we give glory to the Lord. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Behold, here is my dream. And he recounts the dreams. But he adds a little bit to it. This time he says, These cows were so gaunt and so ugly as such that I've never ever seen in all the land of Egypt. Now, part of this is probably why he was so troubled in spirit. You know, he goes on to describe this to, to Joseph a little bit further detail. And, um, but, you know, he was indeed troubled by this. Um, verses 25 through 28, God has shown Pharaoh what he is about to do. Um, he says, uh, then Joseph said to Pharaoh, the dreams are one. God has shown Pharaoh what he is about to do. In other words, these dreams were prophecy, but they were also distinct for Pharaoh and what he was about to, to enter into and what his people were about to endure. And so seven years of good and seven years of famine. And, you know, God does show us things that he's going to do. In fact, he does this so that we'll believe and that so we'll know that there is nobody besides him. Um, Jesus even told his disciples, he says, and the religious leaders, he even told John the Baptist to look at the works that he did, not because they showed necessarily his power, but because he was fulfilling what was said about him. I'll show you what I'm going to do so that you know who I am. And Back in, uh, we already read some of these passages in, in Isaiah that you probably recognize these were prophecies of Jesus, his Holy One, the Holy One of Israel. And so that was his testimony. That was the proof that he was the Messiah, that he was fulfilling the Word of God. If he didn't fulfill scriptures the way that scriptures prophesied about the Messiah, then he's not the Messiah. 
God can't make a mistake, or he's not God. In the, in the Old Testament, we talked about this a few weeks ago, the, the prophets, if, if you prophesy and you, uh, you're wrong in one or two, then you're not a prophet because you're not going to be wrong. If God is telling you, uh, you know, and giving you those dreams per se, that to prophesy and speak to Israel and it doesn't come to pass, well, then they were supposed to stone these guys, put them to death. Why? Because they're false prophets. They're false teachers and all. And so uh, he, um, he, this is his testimony, his proof that he was the Messiah, and he did this, um, these miracles. And when John the Baptist asked him in doubt, you know, are you really the one? He says, well, look at what I've been doing. Aren't I doing the works that were prophesied? Verses 29 through 36, the seven years of plenty will come first, and then the seven years of famine and it says that the famine was going to be so severe that the plentiful years will be completely forgotten because the land will be entirely depleted. And you know how that is sometimes. You, you have saved up for something, and before you know it, it's gone, and you're even hurting to find something to keep up with what you need right now. It, just like that, many times it happens. And, um, you know, he told them, it's going to be so much so that you won't even remember all that plenty that was there for the first seven years. And so the dream was repeated now, he says, because God has established it, and it starts right now, beginning with right then and there. Seven years had, had begun. The, talk, the clock was, was started. Um, two dreams, because God established it. What does the Bible say? Let everything be established out of two or three witnesses. You know, and... Um, kind of harkens back to Joseph when he had those dreams about his brothers and the sheaves of, of grain that were sitting there and all their sheaves bowed down to his. And then he goes and tells Jacob, the sun and the moon and the stars, they're all going to bow down to me. And, um, you know, he had two dreams kind of confirming the same thing. But it was a witness and he remembered that and it's established because there were two dreams. And um, Joseph be, kind of goes beyond the dream now and... and uh, in what verse is it? Uh, Therefore, in thirty-three, let Pharaoh select a discerning and wise man and select him, or and set him over the land. Let Pharaoh do this, and let him appoint officers over the land. So uh, Joseph is not asking to be the guy. He's just saying he's kind of going beyond the interpretation and saying, by the way, let me give you a piece of advice. Maybe you should stick somebody over this and make sure that everything is gathered up and, and stored and, and somebody's put in charge. Um, point somebody to manage the land, appoint officers to collect a fifth and put in storehouses to prepare for the famine to come. And um, in verses 37 through 39, Pharaoh likes the advice, but here he acknowledges that it's the Spirit of God that was in Joseph and showed him all of this. You know, his, his vice was good in his eyes in verse 37. His, and in the eyes of all his servants, and Pharaoh said to his servants, Can we find such a one that, as this, a man in whom is the Spirit of God, or in King James it just simply says, the divine Spirit. And now, I didn't really research all this, and we'll probably be getting to it in the, in the weeks ahead because we're going to be going through the rest of Genesis, but... And in Exodus, when Moses comes back, but, but um, what did they have? Ten plagues before Pharaoh let them go. And each one of those plagues was the type of plague that matched the god that Egypt worshipped. I mean, the first one that comes to mind is the sun god. The sun god was Ra. And so um, Egypt had all kinds of gods. But he knows here, this is the divine. This is the spirit of the god. And he doesn't even say the God of Joseph. He just says, this is the one. And um, the Spirit of God and, and Pharaoh says to Joseph, and as much as God has shown you all this, there's no one as discerning and wise as you. You shall be over my house, and all my people shall be ruled according to your word, except for just the throne. Boy, that just goes right back to Potiphar, doesn't it? You put him in charge of everything, this whole land, um, what does he say? You can't lift a finger or lift your foot without Joseph saying, that's good, you can do that. And so um, he puts him in, in, uh, in 
charge, and Joseph goes around in verses 46 through 49. Um, actually, I skipped ahead a little bit too much. Back in, in, uh, in uh, verses 40 through 45, Joseph gives, or Pharaoh gives Joseph rule in all his house, and all of Egypt, all the people, all the land, all authority, save the throne. Now, we've been doing these uh, parallels between Jesus and Joseph, and, you know, I will maybe do those at the end if we got time, but uh, this one just jumps out, and you can't ignore the fact that who gave his son all authority in all things? There's a list there, um, just to even t- to barely touch it. Um, turn to Psalm 2, listing the things, just a small part of the things that the, the Lord has put his son in charge of. When it comes to God judging the nations concerning how they treated Israel, Psalm 2 is just 12 verses. And in the very beginning, it already, uh, uh, in the very uh, second Psalm of the book of Psalms, there's prophecies concerning the Messiah, prophecies concerning Jesus, and prophecies declaring clearly he is his son. Um, why do the nations rage? And the people plot a vain thing. The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us break their bonds in pieces and cast their cords from us. Well, he who sits in the heavens is going to laugh, and the Lord shall hold them in derision. In other words, it's, he's snorting. It's just, what do you mean? You're nothing. And then he shall speak to them in his wrath. And distress them in his deep displeasure. And we talked about this a few months back or so when we went through uh, Psalm 2. You know, he addresses the nations. Then he addresses the people. And then he addresses the kings. He talks about the rulers. And he talks about each one of those that take counsel together. And all of them, it's against the Lord. And we talked about rage. And this was back a a while. And you remember... uh, four or five years, five, six years ago when there was such rage, the march on Washington, and you saw the, the screaming, and there's rage today. You go look at some of these uh, brave, and um, I guess you've got to be called, but believers who, who go on these college campuses where the college campus kids right in their faces, spitting on them, and uh, there's rage. They don't want to give up what they've been told they have a right to, and they don't even know it's putting them in slavery and going to steal the rest of their lives. But they're enraged. They're raging against any kind of truth, any kind of common sense, any kind of uh, you know, real science, that, that whether it's what a woman is <laughs> by definition, and nobody seems to be able to, to say that these days um, and all, and... and uh, it's just amazing. You can't, it's hard to believe. I don't even want to go into it. But the rage when you start to, to um, see these people raging, and that's, they're raging against the truth. They're raging against God's justice and God's law. And they don't want anything to do with God. In verse 3, let us break their bonds in pieces, cast away their cords. They don't want any truth. They don't want any uh, honest law about the way things are supposed to be. You know, get rid of those cords. Get rid of those bonds. We don't want them on us. And the Lord sits in heaven and he laughs. They're, making, they're trying to make war against the Lord. And, and, uh, but he speaks to them in his wrath. And we looked up that word wrath and, and it's basically knows is what that word is. But it has to do with the fury on the face of a guy who's snorting mad. That's what it means. And, um, but he speaks to them in his wrath. And in his distre- and, and distress them in his deep displeasure. Look at verse six. Yet I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. I will declare the decree. Says uh, the Lord has said to me, "You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will give you the nations for your inheritance, the ends of the earth for your possession." You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall dash them to pieces in a, like a potter's vessel. And now, therefore, be wise, O kings. Be instructed, you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear. Rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way, 
when his wrath was kindled but a little. Blessed are all those who put their trust in him. Look at verse 8. He says, ask of me and I'll give you the nations. You know, what did uh, Pharaoh give Joseph? Everything. And eventually, all the nations, because there's famine throughout the earth, came to Egypt. And Joseph basically was ruler over all the bread that anybody in the nations could, could, uh, would want. And he gave them to him. And he says down in verse, uh, uh, you know, I'll give that to you in hate. And, it, it, uh, and the ends of the earth for your possession. And so the father has given to his son, Jesus Christ, in Psalm 2, the inheritance and given into his hand the nations and to judge. And the nations need to kiss the son if they, lest he be angry because it's him now and his word. And just like Joseph, um, Pharaoh said, nobody's going to lift a finger or move a foot unless you say so. And so um, in Matthew 17, and there's so many more that talk about what the Father has given the Son and put in his authority. Um, But just to say in in verses uh, 2 through 5, he took his disciples up. And uh, when they were up there, they, they, the Lord appeared and uh, his God appeared. The Father appeared to Peter, James, and John and Jesus. And Jesus' garments turned white as snow. And in, in verses um, uh, Matthew seventeen two through 5, he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, his clothes became as white as light. And behold, Mo- and behold, Moses and Elijah also appeared to them and were talking with him. And Peter answered and said Jesus, to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, let us make here three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. You know, when you're in the presence of something like that, I don't think you're thinking about anything else, but wow, this has got to go on forever. And you know it will for us. There will be just, not just tents. Like I said, we're going to have new bodies. We're going to have... Uh, in corruption, and um, these old bodies will be put away and gone. Make three tabernacles, make three tents, one for you guys. And while he was still speaking, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and suddenly a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear him. You know, God could speak to us if he wanted to directly. No, he says, I'm giving this authority, I'm giving everything and all rule to my son because he's the Messiah, he's the one. You know, hear ye him, like, like uh, Pharaoh told Joseph. This is such a parallel to the gospel, you know, the story of Joseph, because not just famine is coming, but the end of the world is coming. And we don't need to just store up a bunch of grain. We need to have our lamps full of oil so that when he comes, we're ready for him. And then we enter into eternal life. It's not just famine. It's the end of the world. It's, it's not just uh, being hungry. It's death. And eternal life is the, the prize. Eternal life is what he wants us to be ready for. This is such a parallel to the gospel. In Matthew 28, just the last few pass- uh, verses of, of the book of Matthew, and the 11 disciples went away into Galilee to the mountain, which Jesus had appointed for them. And when they saw, them, saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all the things that I have commanded you. And, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. What nations are they supposed to go into? the ones that Father made his inheritance in Psalm 2. You will inherit all the nations. And that's where he's saying, go into these nations and baptize. In John 3, what did the Father give him? John three thirty through 36. <clears throat> this is actually John the Baptist when, uh, you know, the Lord had begun his ministry. Well, you know, first thing John the Baptist says is, well, I must decrease. My job is done. I was here to point you to Jesus. Well, Jesus is here. Listen to him. And uh, it says in verse uh, 30, he says, He must 
uh, he must increase, but I must decrease. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth is earthly and speaks of the earth. He who comes from heaven is above all. And what has he seen and heard that he testifies and no one receives his testimony? He who has received his testimony has certified that God is true. For he whom God has sent speaks the words of God, for God does not give spirit, the Spirit by measure. The Father loves the Son and has given him all things into his hand. He who believes in the Son has everlasting life. He does not believe in the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. You know, we talked about it early. God does not desire that anybody perish, but that all come to repentance. You know, not just that he puts a little sprinkle on them and, oh, you get to live forever. No, there's got to be repentance. First thing out of Jesus' mouth when he began his ministry was repent. The kingdom of heaven is near. It, you know, repentance is a part of the gospel. You don't just say, hey, Jesus died for your sins, you're saved. You know, you have to say that it's, it's, a, uh, it's a turning from this world, a turning from the sin. And then, uh, you know, if you go back in the world, it's to preach the gospel. You know, we can't leave the planet. We're still in this world. But we're lights now. We're no longer partaking with the whole party and all that. And it's, it's a, you know, can be a uh, downer for everybody else. It's not going to be something they all like. But it's certainly something that God was with you. Remember, all these nations are his inheritance. All we need to do is go and preach the gospel. Um, <clears throat> so... Uh, you know, all power was given to him, and all things are in his hand. You know, it's even going back to Genesis. Bible says, "Create all things were created by him, through him, and for him." But in verse forty-six through forty-nine in Genesis, um, Joseph go ahead goes ahead and starts gathering the grain, and um, he puts in storehouses in every city from the land that was around each one of those cities, which kind of implies that. As much as they were willing to listen to Joseph and gather up the grains, because the Lord was providing plenty, there's more than they could count. But as much as that individual city was going to do what they were supposed to do, they were going to gather the grain that they needed. So there was kind of a responsibility for each one of those cities to take care with, from the fields and what's around them and all. Now, again, each city would, would have enough based on that. Um, there was more, though, than they could count or even keep track of. So when it really came time down, you know, to need it, when it came right down to it and they, they started to need this during the famine, there was plenty. They didn't have the worries. They didn't have the concerns. There was no desperation. At the first, they cried out because Joseph was in charge. And so they came and they cried out to, to Pharaoh. Is that what it says? And so, but he gave them of their... Uh, he opened up the, the storehouses and fed the people, and everybody had what they needed for another seven years during the famine. Um, in verses 50 through 52, it talks about Joseph having two sons. Now, uh, naming the first one Manasseh, and it means that God had made Joseph forget the toil because of the evil that was done to him by his brothers. And, you know, he was putting in bonds and um and the second one was named Ephraim because he made him fruitful in the land where he had been falsely accused and had spent years in prison you know bearing fruit even though you've come out of prison what's the parallel there for us right we were in bondage to sin and we had our, our lives that were basically a prison because we couldn't give it up. You know, as much as we like to think that we were strong enough to quit doing this or quit doing that, you know, if we were given over to our own devices, we'd be the worst at everything we ever did. And uh, only God can do that in us. And that's why, again, he gets the glory, because God did this in us to draw us to repentance and um, to, to bear fruit. And so Jesus is still bearing fruit in this world that he came to redeem, like Joseph naming him Ephraim, because he's uh, naming his kid Ephraim. But Jesus also was persecuted, and so his church is. And wherever, though, there's persecution, there's, there's growth. 
the genuine church is going to thrive under persecution. You know, the false church is going to leave off and quit, and they're going to go, you know, this is enough. You know, I'm not going to do this. Are you kidding me? You know, and, and some that don't want to admit that they're doing that, well, then they're going to just make their churches so friendly to the world, hanging up the rainbow, rainbow flags and, and saying, we're not going to use any pronouns you don't want us to use in our church services. They even got a Bible out there that's got she instead of he or other pronouns, you know, if they want to do that. They, they make their churches as friendly to the world as possible because they fear persecution. And um, they hang that rainbow flag and all. And they even call those that would point it out to them, well, you're just judgmental and intolerant and, and you're hateful, you know. And they're supposed to be preaching the gospel. But they're, they're preaching tolerance. They're preaching, you know, compromise to just, you know, you can do whatever you want. God loves love. Whatever your love is, that's the love God loves. And it's such a lie. But the fruit of the Spirit is evident to those who know him. It's evident in those who know him and live their life after the Spirit in truth. And then the final few verses, 53 through 57. Um, seven years of abundance and overflow of plenty has come to an end, and the famine begins. And even though they had the Nile River right there, it says the east wind brought such a dry and parched drought, causing a famine for seven years, and the famine was all over the face of the earth. Now, we don't know famine in our lifetimes, as far as I know. You know, and we, there's uh, many outreaches and ministries, and there's also many secular uh, and governmental programs that there's not a single reason there should be a you know, person in the United States that goes hungry on a given night. It usually has to do with something that you're doing in your lives that takes you down a path that makes it impossible for you to, to be reasonable about just doing what you know you're supposed to do. And there's exceptions, obviously. There will be some that are just in, in a bad way, but there's people who look out for those, and there's no reason. If it wasn't such a fallen and sinful world and getting darker and darker and darker, there'd be no needs that needed to be met. They'd be that already. The food's there. There's plenty of food to feed the whole world. But there's also a lot more to the world than the United States. Uh, and there's a lot more to the church than the American church. And um, just looking up a few things in history, um, looked up famines in Wikipedia, the great Chinese famine of 1959 through 61, really, not that long ago. Um, yeah, they had, uh, uh, was often been referred to as one of the greatest man-made disasters. Um, in fact, it's thought to be the, the worst loss of life by famine. Uh, the Republic of China had uh, social factories uh, brought about uh, by their political and social you know, manipulation as communists and the policies, namely the Great Leap Forward back then, which began in 1958 at the People's Communes, created a deadly environment that cost tens of millions of lives. These policies included drastic changes to farming policy and prohibited farm ownership. That's what they do. How many family farms do you see anymore? They're all corporate farms. I grew up in a little town in, in, uh, up east of Green Bay, 20 miles, and the whole my dad's church was full of farmers. That's what was there. And um, there were no corporate farms. And uh, back in the 80s, I think, is when it kind of started to where somebody would just have tons of it going on. And, if I remember, it wasn't Casey Stock, the lumber guy, Stock Lumber, one of the first ones that... Anyways, and um, so corporate farms come along, and kind of what's going on here, nobody gets to have their own farm and, and have that desire to do what's right and have healthy animals so that they could produce good food and uh, good milk. And additionally, the peasants were redirected from Abbott agriculture back in China in favor of iron and steel production, producing farm outputs drastically. All of this was in order to build, build up the military instead of build up the, the people. The government at that time said there were 15 million deaths, but experts agree that the death toll was uh, between 20 to 50 million people in the famine in 1959 through 1961. I was born in 59. I didn't hear about that, but that's a lot of people. That's a famine. 
There was another one in China back further in 1907, uh, uh, famine of 1907. They had uh, 25 million people had died in a famine, and that was due to extreme rains. And uh, they flooded and washed away the vast majority of the plants and the food. Nearly 40,000 square miles of land was flooded during the time in the, uh, the area of China. 10% of northern China's population was lost. Uh, South India, 1782 to 84, um, way back, uh, usually warm condition, unusually warm conditions went through and um, persisted for a few years, kind of like uh, the drought in Egypt with excess of heat, lack of rain, crops, foods, supplies died out. 11 million lives were lost. And Bengali famine of 1770, 10 million people. Soviet famine, they even got on the sides of their buses, I saw they had a picture to remember this. It's the Holodomor, anybody know anything about that? 1933, uh, 1932 to 33 in the Soviet Union. Uh, Again, you know, communism. We don't need food, we need tanks. We need arms. And basically forcing all of the proletariat into submission and causing mass starvation and... um, they believe between uh, 7 to 10 million had died, but they say mostly probably between 3.5 to 7.5 million is what they revised it to. Another Russian famine in 1921, World War I, the, the, the year leading up to hit Russia hard. Um, and uh, it saw a decrease in food production, and they chose not to cultivate crops again instead to, to build up the for the World War I, they built up the army, army instead, built tanks instead of tractors. And the, the, the Volga Basin experienced terrible crop failure, whatever that is. Five million Russians lost, lost their life. Now, um, part of the, used to be the Soviet Union included Ukraine, and it was called the breadbasket of Russia, that whole area through Ukraine, which is interesting in our day. Bengal, 1943, 2 to 3 million lives. North Korea in 1994 to 98, not that long ago, under Kim Jong-un's dad's rule. Um, 3 million lives were lost. Again, all the manpower and food supply were directed to the military rather than civilians. And um, foreign aid never made it. And death tell... uh, Nearly 3.5 metric tons of food and donations were received, and despite all of that, um, uh, 3 million lives were lost. Um, Persia had, back in 1917-1919, Persia's Iran. They had successive years of severe droughts, greatly reducing their output, and 2 million people lost their lives. Then there's the Irish potato famine that goes back to the mid-1800s. You've heard of that one. Um, Crop disease killed much of the Ireland's potatoes. Um, The British actually prevented aid from other nations because of their their disputes and war with with Ireland. And the one million people died. Nearly 25% of the country's citizens were wiped out. There's more throughout Africa. You've seen the pictures. India, Yemen, Somalia, Sudan, Congo. Wars, Uganda, Ethiopia, Nigeria. In 2012, there was a drought in all those countries of the Western Africa, Moratoria and Chad and all those. And it happened. As Joseph had said, and he said, this has to be established. Um, But it was established in the hearts and the minds of Pharaoh and the people because it happened, just like Joseph said. Pharaoh tells them to do whatever Joseph tells them to do. Everyone's looking to Joseph for direction and provision. Same way our Heavenly Father has told us to look to Jesus and hear from him. And he is well pleased with his son. If you just turn one more place to Psalm 105. How did Joseph conduct himself through all this and each of these events along the way? In just verses 16 through 22, we read a little of this uh, last week. In verse 16, he says, uh, Moreover, he called for a famine in the land. Who called for the famine? The Lord did. And, uh, And he destroyed all the provision of bread. He sent a man before them, 
Joseph, who was sold as a slave. They hurt his feet with fetters, and he was laid in irons. Until the time that his word came to pass, the word of the Lord tested him, and the king sent and released him, the ruler of the people, to let him go free. He made him lord of his house and ruler of all of his possessions to bind the princes at his pleasure and teach his elders wisdom. How did he, how did he you know, behave? How did Joseph conduct himself through all this? You know, he walked before God. Remember, he would not commit adultery with Potiphar's wife. You know, he was, he was standing before God. He wasn't worried what people thought. He didn't care about what the servants around that house thought or what they thought they saw. When he gave God the glory for interpreting Pharaoh's dreams, it's not me. He knew what things only God could do. He must have remembered his dreams when he was 17 years old. Now it's 13 years later, and here's Pharaoh having two dreams and establishing the thing. And he waited. He didn't sit there banging on the prison, let me out of here. He just waited for the butler to remember. Butler told me, who, who is it that brings things to remembrance? Well, I know for me it's the Lord because my memory's shot. And so the butler remembers, and Joseph was waiting for two years after that before he did. He allowed God to prosper him and raise him up to all the authority over Egypt, save Pharaoh's throne. He did not ask for the job. He only advised Pharaoh it would be wise to find somebody to be in charge of the food and save up for this famine. But Pharaoh was the one. What did Jesus say when you come into an assembly or you come into the, the wedding feast? You know, sit in the, the low seat over there. Sit down and let the, the master of the house raise you up if he sees fit. You know, and, and that's, that's just being wise. But you walk in there and you go sit down in the best chair and they look at you like you weren't supposed to sit there and then you're, you're cast down. And uh, it's the same for, for Joseph. You know, find somebody, Pharaoh, to do this. He didn't ask for the job. He only advised Pharaoh. And his names, he names his sons for the things God had done. Forget the trouble and the misery from his brothers and how God had made him fruitful and increased him to be second in command twice, really, in Potiphar's house and also in Pharaoh's house and all the land. What do we know about the God we walk after? I had put in the back there, I don't know if you guys had a chance to find out, but there's in the handouts on the table back there, if you didn't get one, there's this one called the Attributes of God's Nature. On the back, it's called God's Moral Attributes. And you can do a study on your own and look these up and look up these passages. Um, But I tell you, before it's over, you find yourself in worship and you find yourself just grateful that such a God has allowed us to come to him and we're going to be with him for all eternity. I mean, what a, it's an incredible thing. God knows all. He's omniscient. He's omnipotent. He possesses all power. He's omnipresent. He's everywhere at all times. He's eternal. He has no beginning. He has no end. He's immutable. He doesn't change. Like James says in the book of James, he has no shadow of turning. In other words, that rolling of the clouds where it kind of fades in and out and, and goes back and forth. He's got no shadow of turning. He's incomprehensible, including his nature and his acts, beyond the comprehension of any creature or created man. He's self-existent. He doesn't need anything. He loves us. He doesn't need us, but he loves us. He depends on nothing for his existence. He's self-sufficient, so he's without assistance. He doesn't need us to help him get things done, but he gives us the, the chance to get rewards for doing the things to be his hands, to be his feet, to be his tongue, to speak to the world and all. He allows us to have that, um, but he doesn't need it. He's self-sufficient. He's infinite, no bounds or limits. He's transcendent. He's above all his creation. He exists before creation, during creation, and he'll be here long after. And um, sovereign, he's supreme, permanently rules all over all creation. And here's a great chance to remind how Dave Hawking puts it, you know, three words for the, or two words for the Supreme Court of the United States. You're not. God is the Supreme Court. His moral attributes, he's holy, he's gracious, he's righteous, just, 
And it's kind of justice that's true and right. It's not what they call social justice these days. It's, uh, he's merciful. He's slow to anger, wise, loving, good. You know, he's wrathful because he hates unrighteousness. He's truthful. And, you know, he, Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. God is spirit, and he's truth. He's faithful, praise the Lord. And he's always true to his promises. And he's a jealous God. He's unwilling to share what he has with any other false god or any other demon that's going to do damage and do harm. He's jealous for us that he would keep us because he loves us and all. So praise the Lord. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your character and who you are. And we're just so, we're so, uh, words fall short. We fall short, and again, we're like dust. And um, because you know, you are you weigh such heavy things. You weigh such the the earth and the to be able to judge the nations, to be able to separate the sheep from the goats and divide the bone from the marrow. And you know, you have the ability to do all these things, and and yet you've called us and included us in your kingdom. And we just want to give you glory. We want to give you praise and be thankful. And to just do what you've asked us to do, knowing that you've equipped us to do it. And not to be something above and beyond anything that, uh, that uh, you've already given us the ability to do. And so we just want to trust you and, and walk in those things. And Again, we thank you for the chance to continue to get together and pray you'd watch over this fellowship, put a hedge about us, and uh, protect us from the, you know, just the wiles of the enemy. And again, keep us in your love, keep us in your grace and your mercy. In Jesus' name, amen.